Please open, if you will, to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. We have been, over the last few months, studying 1 Timothy. We broke away from it a couple times. And now we're back to this very last chapter in this letter that the Apostle Paul writes to the pastor in a church in the city of Ephesus. It was a new church. Timothy is the first pastor after the Apostle Paul's time there behind that pulpit. And he's writing to Timothy and explaining to Timothy what is necessary in order to build the church of Jesus Christ. What are things that need to be said, things that need to be done, how to conduct yourself in order to build the church of Jesus Christ? And these are principles not only for the ancient world some 2,000 years ago, but they are still steadfast principles for today. The same principles that applied back then apply today. Now why? Because the church remains the same. Whereas time changes, technology changes, culture changes, the word of God does not change. God does not change, and thus the church does not change either. Well, church changes in terms of where we meet, and maybe um, the culture of the church might very well change according to where it meets, what country, what part of the country. But the church itself is always the same. The principles of the church remain the same. The truths of the church remain the same. Now, I understand some people say, well, we need to be progressive, and we have to allow the Bible to be a breathing document, and it has to change along with culture. No, it's the other way around, my friends. Culture needs to change with the Bible. See, culture is always pushing away from the Scriptures, and culture tries to negate what the Bible says. The Bible calls on us to bring culture back to where it needs to be in accord with God's principles. Now, we cannot expect that we're one day going to win the country, the world over. The world is going to do what the world does, what sinners do, and so is the country. It would be wonderful to have a Christian nation. We've never been a Christian nation per se. We've been a Christianized nation, but not a Christian nation. In other words, the the principles of the Word of God were more influential in the past than what they are today, and that's very intentional on the part of many many cultural enthusiasts or advocates of of change. The Bible calls on the church to be the ones who will follow the Word of God and display the Word of God. We cannot expect the world who does not know Christ, to want to follow Christ. It would be great if they did. It would be good for us. It would be good for them. But it's not going to happen. Why? Because they don't know Christ. On the other hand, we do. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the regenerating, converting work of the Holy Spirit in us. And it is the Holy Spirit that illumines our minds so that we would better comprehend the Word of God, so that we could better apply the Word of God as well. And here we are given the word of God, and it is for us then to apply the word of God and build this church accordingly. Now, looking at this last chapter, chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, Paul gives us a series of brief teachings on different topics. Beginning at chapter 6, verse 3, he gives teachings regarding false teachers. That's this morning's text. 
Then if you look at verse 6, he talks about contentment, contentment in your life. Uh, beginning at verse 11, he has teachings regarding the pursuit of godliness. And then verse 14, regarding the coming, the second coming of Jesus Christ. We long for that day. And then verse 17, teachings regarding those who are rich. Would that be you? Compared to most of the world, that, that is you. That is us. The rich. And then verse 20, right towards the very end there, teachings regarding knowledge of the word of God. Well, this morning we're going to look at verses 2, the very end of verse 2, and we're just going to touch on verse 6. Teachings regarding false teachers in the church. Probably not what you were looking to hear on a good Sunday morning, but nonetheless, it's an imperative. It's an imperative for the church to consider. And this is why. Because false teachings, teachings from pulpits or from TV or wherever, that are not true and conveyed as God's truth, is like a virus that spreads and kills. False teachings are actually a plague. They are a spiritual plague. Uh, these past few years certainly has taught us a lesson on the spread of disease, uh, a lesson that we probably never really were looking to learn, but we certainly did learn it experientially. Uh, I think many of us recall in school uh, reading about the bubonic plague back in the 1300s. And I always wondered why kids would run around in circles saying, ring around the rosy, pockets full of posies. Uh, I forget the rest. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down, right? That had to do with the bubonic plague. Uh, it had so much become a part of their daily experience that kids were actually singing songs and, and recreating that way. More familiar to us maybe was 100 years ago, which was the Spanish flu, which killed millions of people as well. And of course, some people say, well, it wasn't really the Spanish flu. Well, wherever it started, I, I can't tell you. But I do know it's called the Spanish flu, and it killed millions of people worldwide just over 100 years ago. But we watched just a few years ago as an apparently lab-created virus escaped the walls of the lab and then escaped the borders of China. First it spread through Asia. Then it made its way westward through Africa and Europe, right past the Middle East, wreaking havoc there. Then eastward from China, across the Pacific to the Americas, consuming life and, of course, altering life as well. As quickly as it consumed geography, it consumed life. And maybe you recall, just a few years ago, the horrific sci-fi-like videos coming out of Asia of people dressed up in hazmat suits and people just dropping to the ground uh, many just dying. And of course, I remember watching and wondering, when is this going to come here? Is it going to come here? And the rumors are that they are coming here. And in fact, the rumors were true. It did come here. And before we knew it, we saw people deathly ill on our borders as well, within our own communities. The ever-increasing number of deaths from continent to continent as this plague just came through. And, and maybe you recall the nursing home bodies piled up on their loading docks, bodies and bags decaying in the heat. 
or maybe pictures of hospitals that were overflowing with patients. And of course, the worldwide pictures of mass funerals. It was just the other day. It was a panic, and yes, it was dreadful. Nearly five years later, COVID-19 has claimed nearly 7 million deaths worldwide. About 774 million people have been infected, nearly 7 million deaths worldwide. That's just 1 million short of the population of New York City. Can you imagine just 1 million people in New York City? I think I had 6 million of them in front of me yesterday in traffic. <laughs> 7 million deaths worldwide. Well, I mention all this because false doctrine is like such a disease that spreads and overcomes. It overcomes people, it overcomes entire churches. Uh, you've passed by old church buildings. Some are beautiful edifices. Others are just corner store churches. But they're empty and they're no longer church. What happened? By and large, many of those churches fell prey to false teaching. Some fell prey to just people who were not interested any longer in, in growing the word of, of, of God in other people's hearts. Uh, but many of these churches fell prey to false teachings, and the result is that they no longer exist. It has been a spiritual plague that has devoured these churches. Devastating results. False doctrine is contagious. And false doctrine, false teachings from the Bible spread. And it also mutates as it goes from place to place, from pew to pew, from church to church, spreading, infecting, and changing. And it has brought about many deaths to many churches. In chapter 6, verse 4, we see the source of this plague. You'll notice there that it refers to an unhealthy craving. An unhealthy craving. Uh, the term there, unhealthy craving, literally means a sick, morbid interest. A sick, morbid interest. That is, that false teachers and listeners have an appetite for things that are malevolent, that are dangerous, even deadly. Not unlike creating a virus that can bring about worldwide casualties. False doctrine does the same thing. Take a look at the text with me. I'll begin to read to you from chapter 6, the very end of verse 2. It reads this way. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teachings that accord with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. 
But godliness with contentment is great gain. Well, let's take a look at some of the symptoms of false teachers. How do you know a false teacher when you come across? What are some of those symptoms? What are the evidences of false teachers? Well, again, it begins at verse 2 where it says, teach and urge these things. These are the words of Paul to Timothy, that young pastor, but it's also Paul's words to me, to this Paul. Teach and urge these things. And so let me do just that. Beginning at verse 3, here's symptom number one of somebody who's not teaching the word of God properly. He's a false teacher. Here, verse 3, it says, he advocates for different doctrine. Different doctrine. And then Paul defines what that different doctrine is. He says, this person denies sound teaching. Uh, the old version of the Bible reads, he teaches otherwise. That is to say, he teaches something that is hetero, different, rather than homo or same teachings. He teaches something otherwise. He's teaching things that disagree with the sound teachings of Jesus Christ. Uh, yes, the sound teachings of Christ in the Gospels, but not just the Gospels, you see, because all of the Bible is of God and is about Jesus Christ. So the, the, the false teacher is one who disagrees with the teachings of the Scriptures. In fact, here it says, if anyone, in the masculine, if anyone teaches otherwise, you know he's a false teacher. And not only that, but you notice there, same verse, it says, he denies teachings that are in accord with godliness. He denies the teachings that are in accord with godliness. You know, properly taught scriptures, um, proper Bible instruction should always lead to godliness. As some people consume the Bible so their heads get bigger. And they say, well, look at what I know. I could quote any verse. I could explain any verse. But listen, if it's not producing godliness, it's not producing anything good in you. Your head is getting bigger. And we could tell. We see it. It needs to be producing godliness as well. That's the goal of the scriptures. Heresy, false teachings, cannot produce godliness. And godliness is the goal of the church. In fact, go back to chapter 3, verse 16. Look at what Paul writes in chapter 3, verse 16. He's referring to a mystery that is no longer a mystery. It says, great is the now understood mystery of godliness. Great is the mystery of godliness. And then Paul explains it, which now means great was the mystery of godliness. And if you go back one more verse, look at verse 15. There we see that the church is the buttress, the pillar and the buttress of truth. In other words, the church's job is to hold up the truth of God. What is our job as the people of God? Yes, we are to apply God's word. We are to know God's word, apply it, and become more and more godly. Yes, but in the process, we are to uphold the truth of God. Listen, if we don't do it, who will? If the church doesn't do it, who will? It is our responsibility to hold up the truth of God. And I must say, in our world today, today, it becomes increasingly more difficult. But keep this in mind. 
the darker it is, the brighter the light shines. And these are dark days. But let your light shine. It will shine brightly. People will see it. And people will inquire. Be ready to give a reason for the faith that you have. In other words, my friends, if the church is the pillar and buttress of truth, there is no room for fabricated truth, which is no truth at all. We see here that the false teacher is not committed to the scriptures. That's what it comes down to. He has an alternate truth source, if you will, which, again, is not truth at all. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 notes this. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ, let the truth of God, let the Bible, the scriptures, dwell in your hearts richly, abundantly, overflowingly. Not what we wanted to say, but what it actually says. Not what we are accustomed to, but rather as students of the word of God, that we would look and let that word that is there, that is revealed to us by the Holy Spirit in writing, let that dwell in you richly. The false prophet, instead of being committed to the word of God, instead, he's committed to new revelation. Well, the Bible doesn't say that, but let me tell you what God told me. I'm always amazed at who God speaks to. <laughs> I've met some many, many, many godly people out there. God never seems to speak to them. It's usually people who, who are broken, living outside of the word of God. They simply seem to always have a new revelation from God. Hmm. That's a symptom of a false teacher. Standing outside of the scriptures. You see, there is no new revelation. The canon is closed. The word of God is complete. And to that, we could all say amen. Because we don't need more. We don't need more. You see, God didn't cheat us. He said, hold it, there's a little something I'm not telling you. No, no. He told us everything we need to know. And honestly, there's plenty here. I'm still trying to master this. I don't need more. Some people allow science to trump the Bible. Well, science says, and therefore the Bible must be wrong. Well, admittedly, the Bible is not a science book. It's not intended to be a science book. But what we have discovered is that whenever there's a conflict between science and the scriptures, give it time, and you'll see that the scriptures correct science. The science, science has yet to correct the scriptures. But the scriptures again and again prove to be true, and science bows to that truth. Just give it time. Some people say, you know, I'm not committed to the scriptures, but I am very pragmatic. I am committed to doing what works. And the Bible is a little slow. It doesn't seem to work in our culture today. So let me do it my way. Let me be a little more pragmatic. Instead of depending on revealed truth, let's do it my way. Let's build God's church our way. And that is a symptom of a false teacher. At times, people simply don't study the word of God well enough, and therefore they end up believing things that are simply not true. Let me read to you what 2 Corinthians 11 writes, and beginning at verse uh, 13, it reads this way. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, 
disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. These are the false teachers. And no wonder, Paul writes, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. But get this, Paul writes, their end, the end of the false teacher, will correspond to their deeds. That's frightening. Well, how do you spot a carrier of this plague? How do you recognize a person who is suffering from the plague of false teaching? Well, it goes back to what was read to us earlier in Matthew chapter 7. Here, the Apostle Paul, uh, rather Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, uh, explains to us that you know a false teacher by his fruit. By his fruit. What he produces, you will recognize false teaching. And then Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 tells us how to protect ourselves. How do we mask ourselves from being contaminated by false teaching? Now, he writes in Ephesians chapter 6, and keep in mind that Timothy is a pastor in Ephesus. And he's writing these things to Timothy. He repeats some of it in 2 Timothy, but he's also telling the people in Ephesus, which makes us understand that as early and young as the church was, already false teachers had infiltrated that youthful church from the get-go. What does that say to us? If it happened to them, certainly it can happen to us. And there in chapter 6, Paul says, this is how you protect yourself from false teachers. Put on the full armor of God. Not just a part, but the entire armor of God. Now go and wage battle. And of course, part of that armor is the belt of truth. Right? Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. He says, if you put these things, these principles, before the brethren, us, the church... You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. That's my job, right? But, you know, we have a mutual job because we are training each other in the word of God. So we have to keep these principles at the forefront. Truth, God's revealed word, before each other. I love verse 16, 1 Timothy 4, 16. Paul writes, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teachings, on the doctrine. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save yourself and your hearers. Keep a close eye on yourself and on your doctrine. On how you live and what you believe. Some people are very careful to watch what they believe, but they're not very careful in watching how they live. On occasion, we have people who are very careful about how they live, but they are not careful about what they believe. Here, Paul makes it clear that both are essential. How you live and what you believe. I do help many of pastors within the Evangelical Free Church to be credentialed, to be ordained. It's a process I enjoy tremendously. It's a rather rigorous process, but it all begins with having to write a 40-page paper, a theological thesis, on various 
uh, essentials of the faith based on our statement of faith. And, and usually they're younger than me, and now almost everybody's younger than me. But um, on occasion, there's a retired man who decides to go into ministry, and I enjoy helping the older fellows too. But I must say, there's just something thrilling about helping young pastors. And so I mentor them through this entire process and I drill them and eventually they're going to sit in before a council of about 10, 12, 15 other pastors and they're going to be drilled for about four hours. I love watching that because they're just squirming in their seat. I love it. <laughs> Some of them do exceptionally well. We uh, just uh, uh, had, had an interview not too long ago and, and I was just amazed by how intelligent, how keen this young man was and how he loved God's word. He loved the church. He loved serving the Lord, how encouraging that was. But one thing I tell every single one of them when we begin the process, I say, hey, listen, buddy, we are not looking for anything new. We're not looking for new doctrine. You know why? Because there's nothing new in the scriptures. <laughs> there is no new doctrine. We're not looking for you to be innovative with the scriptures. We are not looking for a new twist. We're not looking for a new truth. We're not looking for a new theology. What we want is very simple. What we want is the tested, understood, orthodox teachings of the scriptures that have served the church for 2,000 years and continues to serve the church well in these modern days. You see, discussing innovation is great when you're discussing technology. But innovation is not great when you're discussing theology. The Bible is ancient, and yet it is new. It fits their culture and time, and it fits our culture and time just as well. It is breathing in that it is alive, but it is not breathing in that it changes. It is progressive in that progressively we learn more and more about God and Jesus Christ with every book we open, but it is not progressive in that it changes. And it is imperative that we understand God's word accordingly. Here is, more briefly, but just as important, a second symptom of a false teacher. Again, same chapter, verse 4. He is conceited. The scriptures here describe them as a person who is puffed up. Uh, literally means that he is enveloped in smoke. In modern terms, we would say he is full of hot air. Now notice here it says he is expected to teach. I find it interesting that in all the occasions in which we're speaking about false teachers, it is in the masculine, and, and, and it does bring a note, a side note, but none important, nonetheless important, uh, a, a note regarding the gender roles in a church. Even the false teachers were expected to be males. In fact, it was, if it was a female teaching the congregation, they would say, hey, there's something wrong here. Not that she's teaching something wrong, but she is violating the teachings of the sound teachings of Jesus Christ. And that would be a giveaway. I can't help but think, when I see this verse here, he's puffed up. I can't help but think 
of a peacock. Uh, last time we were in Florida, just uh, not too long ago, um, we were surprised at what we found in a particular neighborhood when we went to see some family. You know, some neighborhoods have pigeons, right? Some neighborhoods have cats all over. Some people have neighbor, neighborhoods have stray dogs. Uh, this neighborhood had peacocks all over. Oddest thing. Flocks of peacocks walking on people's lawns. And once in a while, they would open up their plume, and other female peacocks would gather around, and, and it would be this ugly screech in the middle of the night. And it was just the oddest thing as we walked around, and, and there were peacocks following behind us in Florida, in a suburban neighborhood. Beautiful green lawns covered in peacocks. And when they open up their plume, when that male peacock opens up his feathers, what beauty, what beauty, and what pride. At least that's what it looks like, right? I, of course, I don't think the peacock is proud, but he sure does convey a pride, doesn't he? When you think of a peacock, you think, oh, there's a proud bird. And he's got something to be proud about. Look at those colors. It's gorgeous. Uh, what creation that is. Well, here the term he has puffed up means that he has pride, but it's undue pride. We could argue that a peacock has reason to be proud. The false teacher does not. He is conceited. He has this misplaced ego. He thinks too highly of himself. Again, Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 reads this way, describing the false teacher as going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Hmm. Going on in detail about his visions Puff up, puffed up without reason. And how is he puffed up? By his sensuous mind. Peter writes in his first letter, chapter 2, verse 19, uh, he, he notes that they promised the people of God freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption, for whatever overcomes a person to that he is enslaved. The false teacher is enslaved. And again, in the same chapter of 2 of Peter, verse 17, he describes the false teacher as a spring of water, but waterless. A waterless spring. What good is a waterless spring? How promising, and yet empty, of no value whatsoever, worthless. So the false teacher is a conceited person. He's puffed up, full of hot air. And here's symptom number three, verse four. He lacks understanding. The truths that transform the soul to the false teacher, those beautiful truths are actually foolishness to him. So foolish that he would rather replace those truths with his own truths. That he would rather maybe tweak those truths or maybe just ignore them or maybe update them. But you see, he doesn't value the truth of God. Why? Because he lacks understanding. Uh, not too long ago, one leading evangelical down south said that we need to divorce ourselves from the Old Testament. What foolishness. What foolishness. I would say this, that the baby Christian, the novice Christian, who believes the Bible has greater understanding than the false teacher. 
who has been reading the scriptures for years and years and years. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, Paul writes, These men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. They are deprived of God's truth. My friends, we cannot build the church of Jesus Christ without his truth. How much of the truth do we need? We need all of his truth. Otherwise, we'll discover that we are risking being sinners. And we are at the risk of being judged by God. And certainly the church of Jesus Christ will be spiritually handicapped without all the truth of God. You see, our goal should be to know and understand and apply all of the truth of God. All of it. All of it. Here's another description. I lost count. What number am I on? Is this four? Same verse, chapter 6, verse 4. It says that the false teacher does not produce godliness. He produces no godliness. Again, it reads, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy. An unhealthy craving for controversy. Again, unhealthy meaning a morbid or sick interest in controversy. Listen, there's no such thing as a healthy desire for controversy. No such thing. Even academic disputes and divisions are unhealthy. It's great to have academic discussions, but when they become disputes and divisions, it becomes unhealthy. It becomes unhealthy. And what we see here is that often these become word battles in debates and disputes. Now, listen, there is health in having discussions over doctrine to write and, and, and analyze and, and go back and forth and add to the conversation to have deliberation and instruction, examination of what the scriptures say. And listen, there's much to be studied. However, it becomes unhealthy when it becomes divisive and brings about disputes. In fact, look at what Paul describes here. There's no godliness in controversy. Why? Because it always produces four things. Envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions. There it is, verse 4. Always. Envy, in that one side will say, I wonder how many people believe him. Why does he have a better argument than me? I wish I had as many followers as him. He gets more likes than I do. Dissension, meaning strife and division among God's people. Slander, meaning you begin to badmouth each other. There's abusive talk. And, of course, evil suspicions, which comes down to a cynical judgment of others. And not only that, but look at verse 5. There you see yet another symptom of a false teacher. He not only produces no godliness, but he also produces no unity. Here is described as a person who produces constant friction. Have you ever met that person? Constant friction. You see how false teachings in a church are a spiritual plague? Constant friction. Uh, one comment, commentator noted that externally, yes, it is satanic. 
It's the influence of the devil on God's people. But internally, it is because of what we see here, verse 5, a depraved mind deprived of God's truth. They are robbed of truth, and yet they think that their bank is full. And the result is that all they do is dispute in unprofitable ways. And it's because of their corrupt minds, what we see here in verse 5, depraved. How they became corrupted may vary, but it's evident that they refuse the solution. Look to the word of God and see what the word of God says. It's really that simple. What does the word of God say? Now follow it. Understand it and follow it. You don't like it? Well, then pray that God would give you a taste for it. And you'll notice, you'll learn that indeed it will be like honey to your lips. As it begins to transform your life, as it begins to transform your family, your home, you say, wow, these truths really are potent because they're true. Who would have thought that a principle of that sort would actually be good for me, for my family, for my church? What we see is that false teachers actually win over people who are then spiritually unhealthy themselves. Here's one last symptom, and maybe um, one that might surprise you, maybe not. It's right there at the uh, second half of verse 5. And, uh, and the symptom is this, piety for profit. False teachers convey godliness. They convey a sense of spiritual wisdom, a pious life. They say, look, follow my example. Why? So that they can gain for themselves. Piety for profit. So that they can gain for themselves. Well, what are they looking to gain? Well, it depends on the person. Uh, some are simply looking for following. They want people to follow. They're looking for a reputation, and that's all they want. That's bad enough. Others are looking for approval. Because remember, they're conceited, and what does a conceited person need? He needs to be embraced, he needs to be patted on the back. He needs approval, because there is a constant self-orientation. Always looking to myself, what do you think of me? Do you like me as much as I do? Will you please love me as much as I love myself? And so they're constantly looking for more approval. Some people, false teachers, are looking for power, maybe for fame, maybe a book deal, so that they can continue to do what they're doing with more approval. But usually, usually, somewhere along the line, whether it's at the beginning or at the end, money is involved. Piety for profit. Godliness as a means of gain. The false prophet's constant cry is this, more. More, 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 more. More passing it back. More followers. More people being deceived. More money. And of course, the greatest and easiest example to give to you are all these TV evangelists who make all sorts of promises to you. They're not subtle at all. And then what do they say? And by the way, send me more money. Send me more money. And people do. These people are millionaires. But we do not have to go to that extent to find false prophets. Most false prophets are much more subtle. 
and these men who sit on these gaudy golden chairs on, on a TV screen on Sunday mornings. Look at what 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 3 reads. It says this, 2 Peter 2, 3. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. In their greed, godliness for gain, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation, Peter writes, is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. In other words, God... God will respond. Well, let me make one more point for you this morning. And that's my, my third and last point is the spread of false teachings. How does false teachings actually spread? How does it spread? Brief but important nonetheless. But before I even mention that, let, let me differentiate um, between two important words when we're talking about false teachings. One is the word heterodoxy and the other one is heresy. There's a difference. A difference in gradation. A heterodox or heterodoxy is disagreement on minor or secondary theological matters. There is room for disagreement on the second, secondary, or even tertiary doctrinal matters. However, heresy is teaching teachings that contradict the essentials of our faith in Jesus Christ. Let me give you an example. Here's an example of an area of heterodoxy. When Christ will return? Will Christ return before the tribulation, after the tribulation, maybe in the middle of the tribulation? And there's agreement there, but this is a secondary, maybe even tertiary doctrinal point. And so there's room for disagreement. However, to say that the Bible is not God's word for us today, that would be a heresy. You see, because the word of God is central to our faith. Without the truths of God, there is no faith to build on. You see? Well, how does false teachings spread within the people of God? Uh, the first one that comes to my mind is negligence. Negligence. And that's due to the lack of reading God's word the lack of studying it, or the lack of discussing the scriptures, the lack of being exposed to good teaching. Uh, we cannot stand on truth that we don't know. And neither will we be able to identify lies if we don't know God's truth. Uh, the old saying that in order to be able to identify a counterfeit dollar bill is not by knowing all the counterfeits, but rather simply know what a real dollar bill looks like. And you'll be able to tell what are the, uh, the counterfeits. And so it is true with doctrine as well. Know the truth, and you'll be able to tell what is not true. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Right? Know the word of God. Let the word of God change you. Here's another way in which false doctrine spreads through the household of God, and that is through pragmatism. Pragmatism says that I am going to replace God's word, God's methods, with what brings the greatest results. Whether you're talking about the greatest results numerically or in terms of what is quicker. What is going to allow for me to get the results I want sooner. 
And so what do we do? We, we change God's word, says, I know what God's word says, but you know, this works better. Here's the problem with pragmatism. Pragmatism very quietly says, God, I know better than you. I know what you said, but I have a better idea, and I know better than you. Pragmatism says, Lord, my ways are higher than your ways. Just sit back, Jesus, and watch. When the Word of God says one thing, this is what the Word of God means then and today as well. Pragmatism uses human means for divine ends. And the result is false teachings. And many of you will remember back in the 1990s what Willow Creek did by marketing the gospel. They called it marketing evangelism. And they said what we're going to do is sell the gospel to unbelievers by catering to what they want in church. So if you're an unbeliever, tell me what you want. They actually would take surveys in the mall. What would you want in a church? Are you a believer? You are? Well, I can't talk to you. You're an unbeliever? Tell me, what would you want in a church? And that's what they actually provided for church. Because it brought people, and it did bring people in. I was there. I used to attend 10,000 on one Sunday morning. And they would just come by the drones because they got what they wanted. But you know what they didn't get? The truth of God. They didn't get that. They did not get the transforming power, powerful word of God. They got it maybe in small doses. They got it in small doses. It did wreak havoc on the evangelical church for over a decade. Of course, exposure to wrong teaching also also spreads false teachings. There, there, there's an old adage that says among pastors, it says, what we are saved with is often what we are saved to. What we are saved with is often what we are saved to. Generally, meaning that we don't really move far away from those truths that brought us to Christ. In other words, what I was taught when I first came to Christ, I generally just stay there. I don't want to move away from there. What I'm saved with is what I'm saved Two, and that's a shame because I never want to be because that was what was initially introduced to me I never want to be there perpetually I want to see what the word of God says and then move with the word of God not move with my experience and we have to be like the Bereans uh, the Bereans are recorded for us in Acts chapter 17 beginning of verse 11 these were people who first they heard the message then they examined the message, and then they believed the message. We have to be students of the word of God and not simply rely on what we were told in the past. If what you were told in the past was true, then good. But if it was not, then learn, and progress, grow in your understanding. Well, what we saw earlier is that the false teachers also use selfish goals in order to spread their false teachings. And the Bible again and again speaks of False teachers who are doing just that, as we just saw a few moments ago. Self-seeking, self-aggrandizing people who want to change the word of God simply for their personal gain. But let me add one more, one more in closing. I think a lot of false teaching spreads because of a lack of prayer for understanding. We simply do not come to God in prayerful meditation as we read his word. And the result is, is that we don't understand his word. And, and then we end up surrendering ourselves to whatever 
is easiest for us to believe and most natural for us to believe instead of asking God to reveal to us even the hardest truths so that we would comprehend and be able to live according to it. Our minds will be illumined as we sincerely seek the truth in prayer. And of course, we see here in this last verse the cure for false teaching. Did you notice verse 6? But godliness and contentment are of great gain. And we'll pick up there next week. Let me pray. Our Lord and Savior, we thank you. Because in your goodness, you give to us your word. And in your goodness, you transform us day by day through the application of your word. We pray, O oh God, that we would be those appliers, those who study your word and apply your word, and that we would be found content and godly before you. Amen.